0: Hey, I'm Donna Amaro, and this is Through the Fire, a podcast about overcoming adversity, reframing misfortune, and celebrating courage. On this show, you're going to meet some really incredible people who have been through some heavy stuff, but they've come through the other side, and the hope is that you're encouraged and inspired by the words that you hear. My guest today is the lead singer of Runaway Angel with a blooming solo career. And a woman who's come back to music after recovering from a surprise leukemia diagnosis that changed her life. Please welcome Cadence Grace. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me.
0: Well, I mean, I I've known of you more more I'd say more recently in the last couple of years, especially the journey you've been through, which we're going to get into mm-hmm. in just a little bit. But I think for, for just for context for the folks out there that that are tuning in, um, can you tell me a little bit about your story, like where you're from? What you do.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm from Curtis, Ontario, which is in between Oshawa and Bowmanville. for people who nobody ever knows where that is. (laughs) Um, And I moved there a few years ago after I got married to my husband. And I'm a musician uh, and kind of on the side. I do a lot of graphic design uh, work.
0: Mm, cool graphic design is that uh i I didn't know you did that that's that's news to me yeah um is that kind of a a full-time gig as well as the music stuff or is it kind of
1: no i just take on like projects that are really interesting to me and and that i really want to work with people on and i i spent a lot of time last year helping my husband rebrand his hvac business which was really cool because i got to do vehicle wraps for the first time and it's like So neat to see something that you design in like the the biggest. uh, Seen them on
0: buses. Aspect
1: ever, yeah, 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 right. So it's it's
0: cool. Um, The uh, when when I first heard of you, I had just signed with the recording uh, company, recording label MDM, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and Mike Denny said, you know, we were. I I can't remember quite where this came up, but it was uh, Runaway Angel uh, Cadence is is dealing with cancer right now, and they're having a kind of pull the plug right now on the the band and and i remember our community our little label community we all just felt felt it right away and i think you probably all know all the the roster of artists on there and so Mm -hmm. we all were kind of you know as best we could sending our you know the the, the famous thoughts and prayers you know and and we thought of you in that way and so my first hearing of you was this battle with cancer that you had Mm um you know we were talking off camera a few minutes ago i i If you're okay with it, could we, do you want to talk a little bit about how you found out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to talk about too, because I don't think a lot of people understand how important like annual physicals really are. So I found out that I had leukemia during a regular physical. I was getting ready to go to Nicaragua to do yoga teacher training for 30 days. And they recommended, you know, have an annual physical because you're not going to be anywhere close to medical care if you need some. So just make sure you're in like tip top shape. And I actually hadn't gone to the doctor in probably three years at that point. I was seeing a naturopath regularly, was very physically fit. I felt like I was at kind of like the peak of my health. Mm. and I. I just couldn't imagine that anything really would have been wrong. So, you know, I go get this physical and the next day she calls and says, Hey, like I need you to come in right now. And I had just started a shift at work and I was like, no, I I can't come in right now. Sorry. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, well you got to come in first thing tomorrow. So, you know, I came in and she just closed the door and said, you have leukemia. I don't know what kind, Um, like you have to cancel Mm -hmm. your trip. Your counts are so high that you could have a heart attack and like, you can't leave the country you're going to go to the cancer center and they're going to do a bone marrow biopsy and they'll tell you what kind of leukemia you have. Um, and I mean, it was just like shock instantly. I was like, no, you're, are you sure you're looking at my tests? Like, there's just no way, you know, are you sure it's not like pneumonia? Like are you sure I don't just have an infection? And she was just like, no, this, especially because you
0: felt, you said tip top. You felt like at your first. Honestly,
1: peak. I felt really great. And I mean, once I was diagnosed, there were small things looking back that I just brushed off because I thought they were just so normal ish. You know what I mean? Mm. It was like, I had really bad night sweats for a couple months, and and I just thought, oh, you know, maybe it's like hormones or whatever. Mm. And and my gums were like bleeding all the time, so I honestly thought I had mm. like gingivitis, and I kept going to the dentist and getting like cleanings and like all kinds of so, stuff. But done. Do, were
0: those parts of it? Like yeah, of it? Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. But it was just stuff that seemed so uh, disconnected and and not serious that I just was able to brush it off. And mm. and then once I was diagnosed, it was like, oh, these were clearly signs that there was something okay. wrong. Um, but I, I missed all of them. And yeah, so I, I went to the cancer center and had a, my bone marrow biopsy and I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid uh, leukemia. Mm-hmm.
0: Two questions. You get this call at work the day after you get the physical. Did you immediately start thinking there must be something wrong or were you just like, oh, they just want me to go back in for extra something or... <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I panicked and I'm, Mm. I'm a huge control freak. So I obviously have like, you know, all those apps where you can see your blood test results, like pretty much in real time. So Mm. I was looking at them at work thinking, oh, there's definitely something's wrong. And then, you know, I went home and like doom spiraled on Google trying to figure out like what that could mean. Mm. And, and pretty much everything that I looked up said cancer, but I just thought there's no way, you know? Um, so, I mean, on one hand I was kind of, like prepared to hear that. But I mean, are, can you ever really be prepared to hear it? Yeah. Mm.
0: yeah. The other thing, uh, how quickly was the process from finding out to immediately go into like cancer care treatment, getting the bone. Uh, what did you say? What was, the, what was the word you used?
1: Yeah. Bone marrow biopsy. biopsy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they take like a big needle and they pour out like a section of your hip. That sounds painful. It's, it is intensely painful. Um, so it took me about 10, 10 days to get an appointment at the cancer center to do the biopsy. And then about two weeks for the biopsy to come back. And then it took about two weeks to get approval to take the drug that I needed to take from the government. Um, Mm. So about five weeks from diagnosis to starting treatment. And initially, I mean, CML is a very well-researched cancer that now has incredible treatment options. So Mm. I was told right away, like you won the lottery of cancers. This is like the most treatable cancer there is. There's all kinds of medications. You just take this medication every day for the rest of your life, and it'll essentially keep your cancer counts kind of um, undetectable. You don't ever go into remission, but you basically keep your cancer at a baseline where it's not affecting you, Mm. and you can live like a a fully normal life is what they told me. So I started doing the treatments, and and they just did not work for me the way Mm. that they were supposed to, and I ended up kind of having a, a situation where instead of, the medication lowering my cancer, uh, counts. It was also lowering my blood counts to like really dangerously low levels. So we just had to keep stopping and starting over and over again. And after about six months of this, my oncologist kind of said to me, you know, I think there's something wrong. This is clearly like an atypical case. And I'm going to refer you to a specialist. So I got referred to Princess Margaret in Toronto, and I went and and met a specialist there. And he, I mean, I just was terrified after that first meeting because I knew this doctor and everybody else that I knew who had CML had told me, like, this guy knows everything. He's amazing. This is who you want as a doctor. And I mean, the first time I sat down with him, he looked at me and kind of just was like, I don't don't know what to do here. And I was like, Uh, wait, you don't know what to do? Like, oh, no, this is... Not going to go well. Got it. Uh, yeah. Right. So, I mean, he said, I've seen this a couple of times and, and we're just going to try a couple more things. So we spent like three more months trying to get these drugs to work. And finally, I mean, I was at a dose that was like a 20th of a dose and it was still just, I was still having to have like blood transfusions all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was more dangerous, really, to do the treatment than to not. And at that point, it had been almost a year of having essentially uncontrolled cancer. Um, and they told me, you know, really, at any point, I could go into what they call like the blast phase of leukemia, where it's it's no longer treatable and you can't have a transplant anymore. Mm. So they kind of, I, I knew probably three or four months before they actually said to me, you're going to have to have a bone marrow transplant. I knew that's what was going to happen, but I think they really wanted to exhaust every possible option before right. we got there and i remember like at one point saying to my doctor you know can i just have a bone marrow transplant because i'm really sick of mm-hmm. this back and forth and, right. and the uncertainty of, of never knowing whether the treatments were going to work and he was like no dude like i don't think you understand you don't actually want a transplant mm-hmm. like it is a last option it's like okay okay so when we finally got there um You know, I I was mentally prepared and and part of of my way of maintaining an aspect of control over the situation was to be, you know, really well researched about what was happening, what the options were, what the tests I was having meant, what the results meant, so that I could talk to my team at every appointment about, you know, what was next and and, and things that were worrying me. And and my philosophy was kind of always like, well, if you're not worried, I'm going to try not to worry. Mm. Um, but yeah, we ultimately got to a point where they just said, you know, if you don't have a bone marrow transplant, you're going to die in the next two to three years. And and what do you want to do? Um, so, I mean, they make you go to a transplant class, which is about three hours and they tell you, you know, like the 80 ways that you could potentially die during or after your transplant so that you kind of understand from a liability aspect, what is going to go down and. And then they say, "Okay, you want to do it?" And uh, and I mean, I felt like obviously I was going to say yes. You know, right. I'm I was so young, and I just immediately felt like I have so much stuff I want to do still. So, mm. so yeah, I, I went for it. And uh, within a couple months, they found a match for me. Um, it mm. was a, a, an unknown donor who I do now know, but mm. um, they found a, a ten out of ten match, and I was kind of moved to transplant. And and within a few months, um, I got. You know, ready to go and and have my transplant.
0: I have so many questions rolling around in my head about that <clears> story. Um, I, one, I I could maybe research this on my own later, but I don't quite know how bone marrow transplant works. It sounds intense. Like probably just like when you talk about sort of the the biopsy of, of bone marrow. I imagine the transplant itself is probably a really intense process because it sounds like the fact that they want to use it as a last resort.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the life-saving thing, but yes, it's the last resort, it right? Is. Yes. Um, so I can imagine that's very intense. But um, uh, the thought that's rolling through my head at the moment is off camera a while ago. You told me you've been married for six years now. Yeah. So your husband would have had to walk with you through this early on in your marriage. Like, yeah. I mean, six years is early on even now. So, you know, you jokingly said that, you know, those vows that you make, you, you really put them to the test right off the top. like right at the
1: Yeah, end the yeah.
0: How's your husband through all this? Oh,
1: God, he was my rock, you know. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that would have run away real fast because, mm-hmm. I mean, we were looking at a, a very long recovery time and and me not working and we had just bought a house and mm-hmm. things were just so crazy that it was like, you know, we were kind of at risk of losing everything and all of a sudden he had to support me fully and, and just kind of go through it all. But I mean, he just, I mean, I'm, I've never met anybody that shows the measure of a man like the way Mm. my husband did. He just was my rock. It was like, he knew I have to be strong through this. So I'm, I'm going to hold us both up. And he kept, he What's runs his, his own business, Bill.
0: Bill, okay.
1: And uh, yeah, he, he ran his own business through the whole thing, kept everything going. And just, uh, he was just so wonderful. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the only thing we really struggled with was, you know, he had had some loss leading up to my cancer. He'd lost his best friend really mm-hmm. shortly after our wedding. And I think he was still kind of going through the grief of that. And so the thought of now uh, maybe losing his wife was was really terrifying for him and I'm one of those people that really needs to talk through what I'm feeling and talk about my feelings and I kept trying to talk to him about like what you know what are what are we going to do if I pass away how are we going to handle things and and you know because I mean when you go into a transplant you have to have a will you have to have a power of attorney you have to make all your end-of-life decisions so you know at 33 I'm sitting there deciding all of these things and I'm wanting to talk to him about them and he just was like no. I'm not. We're not talking about it. Right. Um, you know, so finally I, I think a couple of weeks before my um before my transplant, I just said this is this is something that's really important to me. We need to have this conversation at least once. Um and we had worked with a therapist before our marriage. We went to this like amazing uh boot camp about like kind of communicating in a relationship that just was the most beneficial thing we ever did as okay, a Okay, where is that?
0: I might need to go <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was down. just great, and uh, and so I I emailed the woman who hosted it, and I just said, would you be like a mediator in a very difficult conversation between my husband and I, so mm-hmm. that we can talk through these conversations that I know are are heavy, but like I don't, I think we're gonna need like another person to guide it. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. So we just sat down with her, and we had kind of this guided discussion, and and we made up this rule that you know we're just going to talk about this this one time and then i'm never going to bring it up again but we need to have this conversation mm. once about you know what we're going to do if, practical if I things don't, yeah, yeah practical things right because again i'm a control freak and that's part of of maintaining control is you know what's going to happen if i'm not here what are you going to do what are we going to do with the house and, and all that kind of stuff right. right so
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? So when we talk about fires on this show, I am just gonna say it sounds like you guys have been through absolute hell like it's it probably would have been a hellish time. I want to know what do you cling to what's your, what's your light in all of this? The process of hearing like, here's all the ways you could die <laughs> right like how, what do you what do you what are you going? I'm hanging on to this thing
1: I mean, maybe it was a little bit of naivete, <laughs> but I kind of thought I mean, like I'm in my early thirties, I'm really healthy, right. you know, I just thought out of these things that they said that could happen, like maybe a couple of them would happen to me. Um, and and I kind of went into it thinking, just hoping for the best, I think, kind mm. of just believing that everything was going to be okay. Um, and I mean, obviously I was wrong. Like uh, most of those 80 things happened to me, mm. uh, minus death. Um, so, you know, I, I think I knew mentally what to be prepared for. And I just tried to, I don't know. I guess it's just a combination of things. It was like, I believed that I was going to be okay. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time meditating and visualizing and, and just trying to be in a a mentally good place. And, and also, I mean, this is going to sound super weird, but I kind of had this moment where originally I was supposed to have my transplant in uh, March of 2019 and I ended up getting sick about a week before my transplant and they had to call it off. Makes it Like a cold? uh, Yeah. I just got like a cold and they said, you you can't have any, you have to be fully healthy going into the transplant process um, or you'll die. So they moved it a month and I kind of had this realization where I recognized that I was not mentally prepared and I was kind of still in a a state of denial and I hadn't done my will and my power of attorney. And I was just pushing Mm. those things off and and trying to pretend like it wasn't happening. And when they moved my transplant, I kind of had this moment where I felt like the universe was saying to me, like, get it together. Like you Mm. have to get it together now or you will not survive this. So I said to my husband, um, we had to rent a condo across the street from the transplant center because for the first 100 days, you have to be within 10 minutes.
0: After the transplant, you have to be within a, a 10 minutes from the hospital. The,
1: yeah. Okay. Um, so we rented this that. condo and they kind of said, I, I said to him, I I need to go and be alone for a month, which I'm sure, you know, leading up to potentially dying, he was like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. But I just was like, I need to be alone. I need to come to peace with this. Like, I need to be in the right place. And I am not right now. So I went to the condo and I spent, you know, almost a month there alone. And I just really did some like deep personal work to try and be in a in a positive place going into it. And some of it was sitting down and, and writing letters to a lot of people that I gave them to read on on like day zero, which is like the day of your transplant. Mm. Where, you know, I, I recognized that I had some emotional baggage that I felt like if I try to carry this with me into this next life, I'm not gonna make it to the next life. Mm. If that makes sense. Interesting. So yeah, a lot of it was just trying to let go, do a lot of meditations. I listened to this really great one that was like meditation for deep healing, like multiple times a day and and just tried to do a lot of positive affirmations and and get my mind in a a really good place going into it. Then the, the other pillar of it is that, you know, people always talk about that we're a family, like in the country music industry and I mean, it is it is so true and it was never more clear to me leading up to that transplant because, I mean, everybody banded together and they helped raise money so we could like pay for the condo and not lose our house. And just seeing the support and the love from everybody was really, really lifted me up going into it. Hmm.
0: I get this sense, uh, just you talk about meditation, you talked earlier about, about yoga and this idea of like going for the training. Uh, where were you going to go for that? Nicaragua. Nicaragua. And, um, but there's also this part of, and I'm sensing, I could be wrong, but, but it seems like there's a, going into a, a condo for a month by yourself Was silence, a big part of this for you. Was
1: there silence? Yeah, I think silence and, and being able to be alone with my thoughts mm-hmm. and, and work through a lot of the, the fear and the things that I was thinking about and, and the things that I knew I needed to leave behind and, and yeah, just trying to find some mental clarity
0: is that something you would recommend for people that are kind of in that same place? I, I don't know how many people go on that same journey as you went, because like you said, you went through a lot of the, the 80 things that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. You went through a lot of them. Um, what would you recommend to somebody that's, that's like maybe in that same place today that, that might be in that same condition, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think do whatever feels good right to you in the moment. It seemed crazy Mm. to my family and my husband. They were like, what do you, yeah, like, (laughs) what do you mean? This might be like our last three weeks with you and you want to like spend it away from us. But I just knew in my gut that's what I needed. I also Mm. knew that like I was about to spend, you know, up to six weeks in a hospital and then a hundred days in the condo and you have to have 24 seven supervision for the first hundred days. So I knew that for the next like four or five months, I was never going to be alone. And I kind of just, I mean, it sounds horribly selfish, but I kind of just really wanted that <laughs> time, you know, to come to peace with myself and, and to heal myself as much as possible so that I could mm-hmm. move into, into that next stage. Well
0: clearly it seemed it worked because I, uh, yeah. I, I would, I would, I would venture to guess that, and, I, and, you know, based on some of the conversations I've had with folks already in this podcast and, you know, outside of the podcast, your mental attitude approaching these kinds of things, I think counts for, I, I would say more than, than, than maybe even the, the, the procedures themselves.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um,
0: and that's, that's what I sense with you. I think it's the sense with most people that come to this show uh, is this this healthy mental attitude as they're approaching whatever it is that the the fires that they're in. Yeah. And I get that sense from you too, that you have this ability to just say, I'm in this and I'm gonna I'm gonna just walk through it. Whatever whatever it means. That's that's what I'm hearing from yeah. You, you, tell you, you. Yeah, tell a story.
1: lot of it is radical acceptance. Like you have to accept what's happening and the mm-hmm. more you try to deny it, like harder it gets. You tried to at the beginning. I did. I did. I really did. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, you just have to come to a point of radical acceptance. This is where I am. This is what's happening. And, and, and I am the master of how I make it through this. Right. And,
0: and, and, you know, again, because, you know, I, I have, you know, followed you for a little while and I, and I could see even through, I I talked to you over your Instagram post the other day, you went through a massive transformation just in terms of like the medication you were on and things that were you gained a hundred pounds. You you lost a bunch of pounds, and like for me, seeing you here like this today, um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to to, to know that. I mean, we, tomorrow's not guaranteed. We're never we never know what's coming. But hearing your story is inspiring to me because I'm I'm the ripe young age of forty two now, uh, and and I'm you know I'm dealing with things. I got bad back stuff and hip stuff, and I'm going and I've gone to for recent checkups and stuff. So I'm glad you said that that people really shouldn't take that for granted because we really need to make sure that we're doing the work uh, Mm -hmm. on ourselves and and getting those checkups done to make sure everything's good. I'm told everything's good. I don't always feel good, but I'm told everything's good. But um, I, I'm just, I'm so inspired by, by that, that you've been able to kind of like go through that and be here today in the condition you are. Not only that you're back in the music community. Would you say you, you left the music community for throughout that whole thing Were you, not, not left it, but, you just obviously weren't pursuing music because you just kind of probably couldn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely hit pause on everything. I mean, I released one single like right after my transplant called I'm not, which is about my cancer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, of the, the idea of, you know, everybody would say to me like, well, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Mm-hmm. And, and the song was kind of like, well, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not sorry. And I know that sounds super weird, but there was a huge proponent of me that felt like, it was a mix of feeling like this was supposed to happen mm. to me.
0: Like you said, radical acceptance, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and also kind of of, of, of being confused about why it was happening, but still knowing that it was supposed to happen, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I have that kind of piece of, of knowing like that I was supposed to go on this journey and I, I didn't enjoy all of it. And maybe I still don't fully understand why it happened, but I know that it happened for a reason. And, Mm. and it was, it was what I was, the, the path I was meant to walk, Mm. you know,
0: musically speaking. So so how long would you say you've, you've kind of picked it back up now in, in, in recent months? Like, has it been?
1: Yeah. Just since like the beginning of this year, I wasn't actually sure if I was going to go back to music. I was kind of thinking maybe I would be guided into doing something else in my second life. And And I love I, that
0: you call it that second life. That's interesting. It's well,
1: it's yeah. how they it's how they refer to it in the transplant community. Oh, interesting. Um you on the day of your transplant, it's called day zero. And then they measure your new life like each day with a plus from mm-hmm. there on. So it's like plus one, plus two for Do each you know where you're at now, days? How many days? Oh, I think it's like plus twelve hundred and thirty.
0: That's be that's a beautiful number.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a really good one. Um, and, uh, and, and also, I mean, genetically you become another person after you have a bone marrow transplant. Mm. So it, it really is kind of like a, a rebirth of, uh, of sorts. Um, but yeah, I kind of thought I would just be guided to do something else. And I kept waiting for that message to happen and, and it didn't. And my parents like, God love them. <laughs> they, they're just such huge supporters of my music and they kept trying mm. to kind of gently nudge me like why don't you try getting back into music or Mm. or doing something Mm -hmm. um so they kind of helped me buy some uh production gear because I was thinking well maybe I'll get into like doing um some production and maybe Mm. I won't go back behind the scenes being an artist yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. um and and so I just kind of got this stuff and and then I found this songwriting class that I really wanted to take and I was talking to them about it and, and I was like what if you guys took it with me and they were like, "Oh okay, sh- sure." So we took this songwriting class together, and the first song we wrote ended up being um the single that i I released this year called mm-hmm. "Don't." Yeah. And I just remember writing it and and kind of like do- producing the demo for the first time on my own and and just feeling like this fire inside. Mm. and it was just like, "Oh, okay, never mind i'm not I'm clearly not gonna get called to do something else. like I'm going back to music, you know mm. i it, it's almost like. You're in, in fight or flight for so long and creativity is like the first thing that dies when you're in fight or flight. And I was just so disconnected from music that it almost felt like I, I didn't belong there anymore. And then as soon as I wrote this song, it was like, oh, well, duh, I'm just going to go back to music because it's what makes me me, you know.
0: The song Don't, what's it about?
1: It's about a, a very specific ex-boyfriend who okay. uh, who's still likes to call and, and text me after about a decade. <laughs> and uh, and he literally maybe like texted me the day before I wrote the song and mm. was just talking to me and and just I kind of had the idea. And the songwriting class that we took, it was really interesting. the way that they were kind of teaching writing a song it was very different from how I would write it. And it was kind mm. of like, you know, come up with this, you know, this looped uh, melody and then you kind of just, you know, throw syllables on top of it until you feel like, something fits and then you mm. work backwards from that yeah. and so that's what we did and we were just using like don't a lot and then uh, and we really like the different ways that you could use don't and, and it mm. just kind of grew from there that's
0: but, so cool i heard yeah. i heard john legend in a in a interview yesterday talking about how he just mumbles in his phone i think a lot of us do when we're, yeah. when we're creating these, these music demos and stuff and, and he says, I just, it just phrases. That's it's not yeah, even necessarily like a, a lyric, but it's just or... something just feels right in the context of that melody. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what happens. and Sometimes I think magic happens when you do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's that. It was just such a cool experience to create something with them because I mean, they've been a part of my journey for my whole life and mm-hmm. they've been with me to record records and to Nashville and on tours. And just, it was so cool to actually make something with them Mm.
0: last question Mm -hmm. what does the next chapter look like for you moving forward from here i mean obviously you're going to be back in music it's it's great to see you here uh have you thought out what the next pieces are i I also imagine when you go through this it makes you just not necessarily think so far ahead and go but go i want to be here now Mm -hmm. i imagine that but but have you thought (laughs) saying that have you thought two three four years down the line is that any, any part of the process
1: Yes and no. Um, I had kind of like this moment a couple weeks ago where I was playing a show and, and I had this like, it was like this moment where I felt like the whole time I was sick, I would kept visualizing myself being back on stage. And, mm. and I always feel really connected to the universe when I'm singing. And I just kept visualizing like that connection happening again. And it was like, I finally was there in that moment that I'd had in my mind for like four years. And, and so now I feel like now I can, start to think about what's next, start to visualize what's next. And, and I think it's going to be different than what I planned. I really want to do a lot of music, but I also really want to start exploring, um, fear and, Mm. and, and realness. I think sharing the reality of what I was going through with other people and, and sharing parts of myself that probably I would have never shared as an artist, um, helped me realize how important it is to really speak your truth um, because it gives other people, you know, the permission to to stand in their own truths. And so I really am I'm kind of working towards this concept of of helping other people get real with where they're at and what they're going through and, and sharing that with other people so we can all feel, you know, less alone in what we're going through.
0: I'm here for that. Yeah, however that looks in the future. Um, so glad for you sharing here and so glad that you're here.
1: Yeah. Thank appreciate you so you much, much for having me. really appreciate it.
0: As I always say, it takes a village to run things here at Through the Fire. And I want to thank my village, executive producer, Sarah Burke, administrators, Lori Brown and Alan Gray Eyes, video and audio design by Chris Godry and his team at 44 Films, feisty creative for their design work, social media support by Johnson Design Company, and last but far from least, I want to thank our technical producers, Matt Kundal and Evan Serminski from the Sound Off Media Company. I look forward to sharing more great conversations just like this one on the next Through the Fire. You see the light.
1: Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.
0: Do, did,